Hello, Resilient Catholic Community members. This is Dr. Peter. We are in the Interconnections Talk for Week 39, all about parts and the body. All about parts and the body. And I'm really excited to bring this material to you. It's been asked for by several members of the RCC. But before we hop into that, let's just do a brief review of week 38, what we covered last week, all about legacy burdens. I just like to do this review to help solidify it, right? So according to Richard Schwartz, legacy burdens from last week are intergenerational transmissions of extreme feelings and beliefs. It's a very compact definition, intergenerational transmissions. They come from back earlier in time from other people. The main difference between legacy burdens and personal burdens is that parts who carry legacy burdens did not experience the trauma that the burden points back to. Richard Schwartz discusses how there are some common legacy burdens that are prominent in the U.S., including racism, patriarchy, individualism, materialism, and a lot around sexuality and gender. He says, quote, Parts often take on the extreme ideas, behaviors, or feelings of significant others. These transferred burdens are just as organizing and constraining as personal burdens. Because they are highly dependent on their parents and eager to be included in the family culture, children are particularly susceptible to burdens that are passed down from one generation to the next, including the burden of having to protect another family member, of having to be a great success, or believing that the world is too dangerous to engage in developmental exploration and risk-taking. Richard Swartz notes that legacy burdens can be expressed in chronic shared feeling states, or in shared habits, or in shared beliefs. And two scenarios that can illustrate legacy burdens. First, when a parent's manager's exile the parent's own sad, needy, angry, or otherwise intense parts, And then in a parallel process, those parents' managers reject the sad, needy, angry, or otherwise intense parts of the child. Then the child's managers take on the role of exiling her own needy or sad or angry parts, mimicking her parents' managers. The child learns both by her parents' modeling and by her own experimentation, her own practicing within her own self, that to suppress her sad, needy, angry, and intense parts works. It actually helps to re-engage mom and dad. The child directly experiences the parent's manager suppressing her own needy parts, resulting in the exile, and then the child's protector parts maintain that part in exile. The second way that legacy burdens are passed down through the generations is when a parent's exiles turn to a child for care. That's a role reversal. When the child's managers are required to protect the parents, and in that process, the child had to exile her own needy parts. The parts with needs were exiled, and they feel sad and shame and loneliness, and there's ripple effects through firefighters and managers, all organized around trying to make the child the best parent of her own mother or father that she can be. This is one way that child's managers become parentified. These family managers are a powerful force. They are capable of dominating and exiling various parts of family members for years. 
Working with legacy burdens is very similar to working with personal burdens, and I'm just going to invite you to review week 38 for more information about that, because now we want to move on to this whole question of the body, parts and our bodies. Let's just start with what we know to be true by common sense, by our own observations, the power of natural reason. We are embodied beings. We are body and soul composites. And it's important that our innermost self be embodied. When we are blended, when we are not in self, the self is not as present in the body. The self is not as connected to the body than when we are recollected. And when parts sense that your innermost self is in your body, it is easier for those parts to trust your innermost self's capacity to lead and guide your entire system. Richard Schwartz argues that when the innermost self is in the body, it has more ready access to all of our physical hardware as well. Parts can be embodied or not embodied. When our parts are more embodied, they express themselves through the body, through our posture, our gestures, our voice, the way we move, our facial expressions. Embodied parts can also generate physical symptoms of all kinds. These include rapid heart rate, muscle tension, difficulty breathing, numbness, weakness, fluctuations in body temperature, hunger, thirst, physical pain, and sensations of tingling, heat, or cold. It can be skin rashes, itching. A whole host of physical experiences can be generated by embodied parts. Let's just talk for a minute about pain, because this is one of those issues that comes up for a lot of people, chronic pain. In the reading that I assigned for this week, this article, IFS and Chronic Pain, Listening to Inner Parts That Hold the Hurt by Howard Schubiner, Richard Schwartz, and Ronald Siegel, there's this quote. Quote, Common and completely understandable reactions to pain include fear of it, obsessive focus on it, becoming frustrated by it, wanting to fight it, dissociating from it, and trying to fix it. All these responses suggest to our brains that the pain is, in fact, dangerous and, as a result, make it more trenchant, end quote. Pain. We're going to talk about pain today, but I also want to mention how IFS has been found effective for medical conditions. Richard Swartz and Martha Sweezy write, quote, healing exiles and liberating protectors can have a positive effect on a wide variety of medical conditions. And Schubiner, Schwartz, and Siegel write, quote, it turns out that most chronic pain and an astonishing variety of other medical maladies have little to do with damaged tissues or untreated infections. They're maintained by complex mind-body interactions in which our brain's natural proclivity to avoid pain traps us. That is actually a remarkable statement. So much chronic pain, so many medical problems are not able to be connected to damaged tissues, untreated infections, anything that's observable in the physical body. Rather, a lot that goes into chronic pain and other chronic medical conditions is psychologically mediated in some way. And I knew that 30 years ago. I knew that when I was studying behavioral medicine. 
At the same time, I agree with Dick Schwartz that physical ailments and diseases are not solely caused or maintained by parts. And that's a really important point. There are all kinds of physical factors in the material world that can impact our bodily health. These include genetics and viruses and bacteria and physical injuries and environmental toxins. All of these things can make us sick regardless of how integrated and in self we are. Nevertheless, clinical experience shows that parts can deliberately impact your biological processes, including immune responses, organ weaknesses, genetic predispositions, and other bodily, physical, and medical conditions. It's very clear that parts can exacerbate medical conditions and make them worse. Sometimes they do this intentionally in order to further their agendas, the ways they are trying to help, and sometimes it's unintentional. It's just collateral damage. So let's discuss the ways that parts use the body in order to try to communicate or in order to try to help us. I'm drawing heavily from Chapter 5 of Richard Swartz and Martha Sweezy's book, Internal Family Systems Therapy, 2nd Edition. Let's talk about exiles first. We're going to talk about all three groups, exiles, managers, and firefighters, but let's talk about exiles first. Exiles use the body to signal a need for help. Dick Schwartz refers to the body as a message board for exiles. Exiles often hide out in or around the heart, the gut, or the back. Those are really common places where exiles are manifesting some kind of trailhead. An example, an exile with a burden of extreme pain about feeling so unloved causes your heart to race and causes chest pain. Here's another example. A suppressed exile with deep grief about a recent loss generates nausea and vomiting as a way to try to tell you how much she needs to discharge the overwhelming grief she has taken in while your managers are trying to minimize and discount the grief, saying it is nothing. That's a third example, a little more complex one here. A woman has an exile with intense anger and grief about her husband's infidelity from years ago. He committed adultery. But following the advice of her spiritual director, she has forgiven her husband and tried to put his infidelity behind her. Her husband has since given up his mistress and his pornography use, but there are still unresolved wounds from the betrayal. Each month, at a certain point in her menstrual cycle, she experiences hormonal changes that lead her to be much more irritable. The exile, with the pain and the grief and the anger, directs and channels and increases irritability toward her husband for little annoying things he is doing in the present in an effort to try to communicate how much anger, grief, and shame she is experiencing as a result of his adultery. The unwitnessed and unacknowledged experience of the exile exacerbates her hormonal issues. So exiles, they use the body as a signal that they need help. Managers, though, they use the body in a different way. They use the body to exert control. Managers need to control, and that can be expressed in containing or suppressing or holding or freezing. In the body, manager activity is most commonly expressed in your muscles and connective tissues. So what does that look like? Well, here's an example. Let's say that you have muscle pain and tension in your right shoulder, and that's generated by a manager to suppress the intense impulses of an angry fighter fighter who wants to lash out physically, 
right? You've got an angry firefighter wants to lash out. The manager creates or exacerbates this pain and muscle tension in your right shoulder to limit your physical ability to, to, to act out. Second example, there's a father of a teenage son. This father has a self-sacrificing manager that clenches his jaw to make sure it's shut tight during a conflict with his teenage son to keep his internal critic from criticizing his son's driving too much, right? So father's teaching his son how to drive, son's not very good at it, internal critic within the father wants to just criticize and criticize and criticize. The self-sacrificing manager of the father clenches the jaw to keep the critic from being able to do that. Third example, a pessimist manager brings on a heavy load of bodily fatigue to keep a single woman from pursuing a romantic relationship in order to keep her exile who carries the burden of shame from rejection from ever being hurt again by a boyfriend, right? So this pessimist manager brings in the fatigue, shuts down the possibility of dating this guy because there's an exile who never wants to be shamed again, right? That, that protector wants to keep that exile from ever being shamed again. Doesn't want the rejection. All right, so that's how managers can use the body to exert control. But let's talk about firefighters. Firefighters use the body either to distract from emotional pain or to counter the over-inhibition of managers. So firefighters activate the endocrine system. They activate the nervous system in the service of fight or flight. That they release stress hormones that can increase your heart rate, your breathing rate, dilate your pupils, moving you into fight or flight. And they can also use physical arousal and physical desires to help you distract from emotions that those firefighters view as threatening. And that physical arousal, those physical desires can include cravings for food or sex or pornography, alcohol, drugs, video games, sleep, whatever will distract you. It can lead to addictions and eating disorders and self-harm behaviors and sexual pros- promiscuity. Schwartz notes that the physical harm resulting from firefighters' distractions is often a side effect, though, rather than a goal. Because, again, firefighters aren't looking at long-term consequences. They're looking at putting out the fire right now. So let's say that you have a public presentation to do at work in front of senior executives and your exile is terrified. Then a firefighter comes in with an intense headache pain to disable you and keep you from having to do the presentation in order to keep the exile safe from humiliation. Another example, a middle-aged man has just learned from his elderly mother that his father has been hospitalized with shortness of breath, chest pain, and ringing in the ears. They don't have a diagnosis or prognosis yet, The man's exile, who has always wanted to feel his father's love, now realizes that this may never happen. That exile gets triggered, bringing in intense grief and anger. His firefighter impels him to reach for his video game controller, and he plays four hours of Fortnite in a row, missing an online meeting for work. And see the distraction there. One more example of how firefighters can use the body to distract from emotional pain. A young woman who has experienced rape trauma in the past notices that a man is interested in her. He asks her to go out on a date. She politely declines, but an exile deeply craves love and wants to be held by a man. A firefighter drives her toward binge eating with the hope that she will gain enough weight that she will reach a point where she will no longer be attractive to that man or to any other man. Why? 
to avoid being raped again. So, so those are some examples. Exiles use the body to signal a need for help. Managers use the body to exert control. Firefighters use the body to either distract from emotional pain or to break free from the overinhibition of managers. All right, so how do we use IFS with medical conditions? How does that work? Well, we want to first ensure that there's not a clear and obvious biological or physical cause for the medical condition. So have reasonable medical evaluations and workups done first. We would not want to neglect the impact of a tumor on your pituitary gland and expect that we could overcome the impact of that on your endocrine system by working with your parts. Schubiner, Schwartz, and Siegel write, Before treating chronic pain psychologically, tumors, infections, inflammatory conditions, and other physiological conditions need to be ruled out. That said, most patients with chronic pain don't actually have dangerous medical disorders. Rather, they've probably received other kinds of worrisome diagnoses like tension or migraine headaches, trigeminal neuralgia, fibromyalgia, small fiber neuropathy, irritable bowel syndrome, interstitial cystitis, pelvic floor dysfunction, pudendal or occipital neuralgia, bulging or herniated discs, or functional dyspepsia. More holistic practitioners might have offered alternative diagnoses such as adrenal fatigue, chronic Lyme's disease, leaky gut syndrome, toxic heavy metal accumulation, or candida overgrowth. All right, so we want to be in self as much as possible and be naturally recollected. And assuming you have that, the steps are this. First, focus on a physical symptom. Be curious and listen to that symptom. Second, speak directly to your system as a part of you. You can treat the symptom as a part of you. I learned this from a physical therapist in my, in my IFS level one training. She said, well, just talk directly to the pain. See what the pain says. Speak directly to your symptom as a part of you. Witness whatever the part wants you to know about the symptom and about the meaning of the symptom, the backstory behind the symptom, the who, what, where, when, why, and how of the symptom. And if the part says that it wants you to understand his or her pain or that it hasn't been able to get your attention any other way, that part is likely to be an exile, right? Exiles using the body to signal something, to signal distress. But if the part tells you that it's using the physical symptom to do something for you, like to hurt you, punish you, control you, distract you, then it's a protector, either a manager or a firefighter. If no parts seem to be involved with the system, ask if any other part has information about the symptom. You can ask how much pain there is on a scale from 1 to 10 right now, and you can ask how much pain there would be on a scale from 1 to 10 if it were just the physical pain, just the bodily pain, and not the suffering of the parts. Reflect on how you feel about your symptom and how you feel toward the part that is connected to the symptom and connect with your parts that hate or fear the symptom to see if they are influencing your body or your medical compliance. We want to depolarize parts around that symptom. Then we can ask for parts who know how to heal your body, either generally or in this particular area. A couple of caveats about IFS and medical illnesses. Sometimes body tissues may be so damaged that complete recovery is just not possible, regardless of how much interior integration you achieve. Sometimes full recovery may require other changes, according to Dick Schwartz, including changes in diet, medication, exercise, environmental stressors, medical compliance, things like that. 
So we want to be careful about not overstating the power of internal family systems and collaboration and cooperation about parts and helping us to heal physically. But we also don't want to underestimate how powerful that can be. How powerful that can be. So with that, I invite you to a brief discussion about this interconnections talk. You know, what did this discussion of parts in the body bring up for you? And as you consider your medical history, what physical problems might be present for you at this stage in your life? Remember to share only what your parts want you to speak for them. Some or all of the answers might be just for you to know right now. And I'll see you on the other side with an experiential exercise.